welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia where we discuss the news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, James Leibold, Associate Professor at La Trobe University. Uh, and today we're going to look at the issue of uh, education and Tibetan culture and employment prospects amongst the Tibetan minority in the People's Republic of China. China is home to a diverse range, a total of 55 officially recognized ethnic minority groups, comprising around 9% of the population. Joining me today to discuss this is Adrian Zentz, a lecturer in the European School of Culture and Theology in Stuttgart, Germany. Adrian is the author of the 2014 Tibetanness Under Threat? Thank you for joining me, Adrian. Thank you. Adrian, I thought we'd begin uh, more generally uh, talking about the picture of ethnic minority education in the People's Republic of China. I wonder if you could share with us some of the options that are available for China's uh, ethnic minorities in terms of uh, education. Yeah, Chinese minorities uh, mostly have the option of going to so-called Minzu education, minority education. And that education at least is supposed to be in their language, available on all levels, primary, secondary, and tertiary. And the issue often is, however, that on the primary level, the education actually is in a minority language, at least to an extent. On a secondary level, it is often the case that the minority language becomes kind of a crutch to learn Chinese. And so the Chinese language part increases and the minority language part decreases. And it's only for a handful of minority languages that you'd be able to study them at a tertiary level. Yes, yeah, so your book, Tibetanists Under Threat? Question mark, which was published by Brill in 2014, is based on some ethnography that you conducted in China in the far western province of Qinghai. So Qinghai is kind of sandwiched in between on the top, uh, Xinjiang, the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, and on the bottom, by the Tibetan Autonomous Region. I wonder if you could share with us a bit about your ethnography there. Where uh, was it conducted? Who were your informants? And what was it like to kind of work in Qinghai? Ethnography in Qinghai was actually relatively straightforward compared to trying to do ethnography in Tibet or even in other regions. So we were based in Xining, which is the capital of Qinghai province, at the campus of the minority university. And uh, my main informants were the Tibetan tertiary students on the campus, which is host to uh, one of the biggest uh, and most reputable Tibetan departments in the province and in all of China. Yeah, and you were there for a year, over a year or so? Yes, a total of 18 months of fieldwork between 2006 and 2008. And as you were outlining to us, Tibetan students in China today can study in their native Tibetan language from primary school all the way up to the tertiary level. But there's also a kind of general perception that over the last couple decades that as China modernizes and enters into a kind of more market-oriented economy, that the pressures for integration uh, have increased. And uh, we do know that uh, there are many inside the Chinese government that would like to see Tibetans, uh, Uyghurs, and other minorities uh, study the national language, Putonghua, and also to adapt to the normative standards of the Han ethnic majority. Is that what you found uh, in the case of Qinghai amongst your Tibetan informants? Were they being encouraged or pushed in the direction of studying in Putonghua, in Chinese, in adopting to uh, Han normative standards? 
There are contradictory developments. On the one hand, yes, uh, Chinese language teaching is being promoted very actively on all levels, also in the minority education system. However, in the Tibetan context, I found a very unique development that from the early 2000s, there was a real grassroots initiative amongst Tibetan headmasters and teachers and educators to promote Tibetan language teaching. And so you had, uh, especially on the secondary level, quite a remarkable development of uh, so-called pure Tibetan track education, whereby now Tibetan was not just a language subject, but also it became the medium of education for a wide range of subjects, ultimately all subjects except for Chinese and English. And wasn't there a series of protests in Qinghai in 2010? And was that related to this uh, policy or pushback? Yes, the 2010 uh, protests were the result of a provincial uh, policy initiative And this policy initiative would have reverted exactly those gains in Tibetan education. So they would have restricted the Tibetan language from being a medium of education for other subjects to just being a language subject and all other subjects being taught in Chinese, which is more or less the situation that existed in the 80s and 90s. And so to revert all those gains. Yeah, and so the government backed down and didn't follow through with his proposed reforms. Well, that's a good question. According to the information I have, I have two sources. Firstly, I have some uh, local educators who are saying that Tibetan education is still intact and the policies were not implemented. But I'm also analyzing Tibetan teacher recruitment and uh, language requirements for Tibetan teachers, especially in Qinghai. And I have found a very unique development in Qinghai in that a very large percentage of teachers recruited for Tibetan areas are specifically recruited to teach other subjects on a secondary level in Tibetan. And so from this, I think we can firstly conclude that Qinghai's Tibetan education, especially the secondary education, uh, is unique in all of China in its extent and breadth. Obviously, quality will vary and differ and does, and not all is well with Tibetan education. But also secondly, that clearly this data is after 2010. Obviously, the policy, if it has been implemented, It may be very localized. Mm. So that's interesting. It's quite a unique situation there in Qinghai. You know, it's quite different from the Tibetan autonomous region, which is often considered the center of Tibetan culture. Uh, it's where Lhasa is. Uh, so it used to be the home of the Dalai Lama, uh, where many Tibetans now live outside of the Tibetan autonomous region in Sichuan, in Qinghai, where you did your field reads, in Gansu and elsewhere. Situations in terms of language learning seem to vary depending on the place. In Qinghai, it seems quite unique in, in the preservation of this Tibetan medium education. I wonder what the, the results of that uh, are for these uh, students who go through that program. Uh, what are their employment prospects uh, like? Now, that is the big issue. The big issue in the Tibetan community is the employment prospects, uh, which are very restricted for those from the Tibetan education system. Now, on the one hand, you have a very positive development in that on the university education level, now also you have a, a much wider range of degrees that can be studied in Tibetan. You can study Tibetan English, Tibetan Japanese, Tibetan computer mm. science, even Tibetan industrial management mm. on the tertiary level in various places uh, in Lanzhou, in Gansu province, in Qinghai province, in Sichuan uh, province, etc. However, the employment prospects of these rapidly rising numbers of tertiary Tibetan medium graduates are very narrowly restricted 
the private sector is largely not going to take them. Because they often have very poor Mandarin Chinese. Exactly. In mainstream society, you got to have good Chinese. You know, unless you want to work as a tour guide with informal jobs and low pay and no employment guarantee and poor conditions, you know. So what do they do? Government employment is virtually the only option. And that's a big issue. On the one hand, obviously, there are teachers, teacher recruitment. And this in Qinghai is a relatively positive uh, scenario because, as I just said, my analysis shows that a fairly high percentage of teachers that are being recruited are supposed to have Tibetan tertiary degrees or Tibetan language skills. Mm. However, outside of that, and so for example, in the more powerful civil service, the percentage of Tibetans required to have a Tibetan educational background is minuscule. Well, so there's a real potential here for the creation of an unemployed, highly educated ethnic minority group. I mean, it seems to me a potential recipe for unrest. It is, it is. And in uh, TAR, therefore, you have a very unique situation in that in 2011, they instituted virtually an employment guarantee for Tibetan graduates, which other regions do not have. The key issue, in my opinion, is inter-ethnic competition between the Tibetans and the Han, but also intra-ethnic competition between Tibetans from the Tibetan education system and Tibetans from the Chinese education system. And if jobs are in Chinese, exam language by default is Chinese. And if a job does not specifically mandate a Tibetan degree, the Tibetan degree holders often stand little chance to compete. And the outcome data, some of which we have for Sichuan province, uh, shows the low percentage of uh, Tibetan degree holders being able to secure those jobs. I want to explore the issue of um, Tibetan identity a little bit further. You mentioned this intra-ethnic competition. So some Tibetan students, as you mentioned, are studying in Mandarin Chinese, uh, some uh, in in the case from the primary school level, uh, while you have this very prominent Tibetan language track that you described. How do these two groups assert their sense or articulate their sense of Tibetan identity, presumably quite differently? Yes, and this probably is the most major tension within the Tibetan community. And there's a great deal of persecution actually going on by the more authentic or pure Tibetans from the Tibetan education system, from more remotely, more pure Tibetan regions with lower Han population on the one hand. And they really uh, look down on the so-called Sinicized Tibetans. Tibetans from a Chinese education system. Language is a really big deal. Language is considered the main vehicle of the cultural survival. So Tibetans who, especially for career, for job reasons, enter the Chinese education system, are really looked down upon as traitors, betrayers of their own culture. However, in my research, I found that to be a very problematic assertion, even though this can and may well be the case. Several of my close informants and personal friends were these so-called Sinicized Tibetans, and some of them were ethnically very conscious. Some even said, I chose Chinese in order to help my people because we need to broaden ourselves. We need to broaden our base. Mm, Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, what is Tibetan culture? What is Tibetan identity? Obviously, it's a very uh, dynamic sense of identity, but at the same time, when a group like the Tibetans do feel they're increasingly being encroached upon by the Han majority and its culture, you obviously get a kind of defensive reaction among some who really want to try to maintain the purity of the the identity, the purity of the religion. 
But at the same time, people need to be pragmatic, right? They need to pursue their life chances. And uh, sometimes that means accommodating the majority in the country that they now find themselves in. Yes, I believe Sinicized Tibetans are an important component in uh, diversification of the young Tibetan generation who needs to pursue different options. You know, we can be very glad that there is such a good, at least not perfect, but better Tibetan education than it was in the past. And that Tibetans can study their language on all levels, including tertiary. But at the same time, if all Tibetans did that, it becomes like a vicious cycle, like a self-feeding loop. Tibetans uh, study their own language, do Tibetan degrees, go back into Tibetan teaching, because that's mostly the only jobs. In order to teach students who then become again teachers, this cannot go on endlessly and not all Tibetans can basically survive like that. Mm -hmm. You need to have a broader base. Mm. And so I think the Tibetan community should be proud of their diversity mm. and embrace it and seek multiple options. Mm. Mm. And I think to some extent they do, but there are, there are major pockets in the Tibetan community that have this real persecuting attitude. Of yeah, and one of the things purity. I think it's um, not very well understood outside those who like yourself and I who study ethnic minorities in China, is the diversity within these groups. You know, the Tibetans themselves are incredibly diverse, uh, you know, have their own regional dialects, but also their own regional cultures and intellectual traditions. Um, and in some ways, these feed into the state project of assimilation, the kind of divide and rule process. But also they can be deeply insidious for the group itself by creating these divisions that you talked about within the group. I agree. And I think if the Tibetans, you know, stand together and stop persecuting each other, I think they would really benefit. The Sinicized Tibetans feel like they're in-betweens and they are actually very insecure. They're on the fringes, on the margins. I think uh, it's a bit like with some of the Uyghurs yeah. who study Chinese. And yeah. I mean, it is understandable. There is the fear of survival. There's a lot of anxiety yeah. that expresses itself in these attitudes and sentiments. Your informants from reading the book, you know, they come from rural backgrounds, you'd be the first uh, person in their family to travel into a major city, to go to a, a major university. I mean, the, the transformation they would be uh, undergoing is hard to kind of fathom, really. Yeah, I think there's all these identity conflict. As soon as Tibetans uh, move to the city, it's almost a sense as if a Tibetanness becomes compromised, you know, the sense of Tibetanness gradually lost. Tibetanness is so uh, ideally tied to remoteness, to non-ethnic mixing, to linguistic purity, to nomadism, uh, all these things. It's uh, highly stereotyped in a sense. And of course, it's based on the experience of cultural assimilation and exchange, although cultural interaction exchange has existed in these border areas between Tibetan and Han empires for centuries. It will continue yeah. to exist. And as does it exist amongst the Tibetans in in the diaspora community. I mean, the Tibetan community in India, I mean, they in many ways have become, you know, assimilated into Indian culture. And so you get this interesting hybrid up in Dharamsala and elsewhere. And so same thing's happening in China, but uh, certainly a lot of us in the West have uh, this really idealized view of Tibet, this myth of Shangri-La, this untouched paradise, uh, unattainable paradise. Um, and the Tibetans have kind of promoted that. The Dalai Lama has, in some regards, promoted that view. But in some ways, it can be quite detrimental, can it? Yes, it can be. It's an over-romanticization. And 
The Tibetans on the ground really struggle with the real impact of the issues of employment especially. And I think a real challenge for the Chinese government especially is actually to solve the employment problem of minorities who graduate from degrees in their own minority language. And for the Tibetans, with the diversity of degrees that exist, they should be more reflected in the civil service, in the public service. There are more opportunities. And unfortunately, that's not being utilized at the moment to that extent. And I think this is really an area where the Chinese government could actually really uh, seize upon the, um, some of the improvements in the education system and sort of take that full circle. And it would really help also with inter-ethnic relations. Mm. Some suggest, though, Adrian, the solution to this, of course, would be to uh, eliminate ethnic minority education completely, to move towards a kind of universal language model where uh, everyone in China would study in Putonghua. Maybe they could have a, a mother tongue or a second language, but that would need to be pursued at home or maintained at home. I do know some inside uh, the Chinese government would believe this is the answer. Uh, I wonder what your views are on that. Well, it would create the ultimate conflict. The Tibetan community in Amdo Qinghai especially certainly views education as a main way of ethnic survival. It does uh, keep them also happy to an extent, you know. I mean, obviously, there's other freedoms that are not available, but it does make Tibetans quite happy that they can study in the Tibetan language, despite shortcomings and grievances that still exist. We don't need to pretend the Tibetan education system is perfect. If you eliminate these gains, you saw the 2010 protests, what happened, and you would see protests, you would see discontent on a much bigger scale, and ethnic relations would really deteriorate. Mm. Now, of course, in the long term, this could be the perfect assimilation strategy for the Chinese state to sort of hollow out minority culture and make it like a shell that's really filled with the dominant Han culture, mm. which has been the case with some minorities in China. Mm. Mm. And some of these minorities know nothing else. Mm. But for an ethnic minority like the Tibetans, I think they would never accept this. Very interesting. Adrian, I'm afraid that's all the time we have today. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Asia Rising, a podcast of Latrobe Asia. If you like this podcast and want to hear more of them, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud, and reviews would be appreciated. You can follow myself, James Leibold, on Twitter at jleibold, or Adrian at Adrian Zins. I'm James Leibold, and thank you for listening. <laughs>